April 7, 1994, a seemingly ordinary day, much like any other day in the bustling 1990s, but beneath the veneer of normalcy lies a tale that is anything but mundane. On this day, a man named Auburn Calloway set in motion a series of events that would leave an indelible mark on the world of aviation. The sun rose on the horizon, casting its warm glow over cities and towns as people all around woke up to their routines. And at the center of our story, Auburn, a man whose actions would shatter the tranquility of that day and rock the foundations of our understanding of safety in the air. Auburn Calloway's morning began just like any other. He sipped his coffee, he perused the pages of the morning paper. Little did anyone suspect the sinister plans taking shape in his mind. He collected what he needed for work, his keys, his wallets, but then included a chilling assortment of tools, hammers, and a spear gun. They were carefully stowed away and waiting for their ominous role to unfold. In a few hours, the world would witness a narrative that defines imagination, a narrative that would pit the mundane against the malevolent and the brave against the unforeseen. Today, we invite you to join us as we peel back the layers of history and uncover the events that transpired on this fateful day in 1994. This is the story of an ordinary day that turned extraordinary by a man with a sinister plan and a determination that defied reason. So fasten your mental seatbelts as we embark on our journey through time and turbulence, and we explore the unraveling of Auburn Calloway's intentions and the courage of those who stood in his way. Welcome to Destination Aviation. Well, welcome back to the podcast, fellow aviation enthusiasts, or if this is your first episode, thank you for tuning in. And if this is more than one for you, thank you for continuing to listen. Uh, We haven't talked to each other for a week, so I think one of the bigger news stories that happened was Yergei Provokovich's plane going down in Russia, north of Moscow. I was actually in the office when the first news alert came out. Basically, there wasn't much information that the aircraft uh, had gone down and crashed, but I think all of us immediately were like, that doesn't sound like that probably just happened. And then as things continued to unfold and videos came out, unconfirmed reports looked like the wing came off the aircraft. Obviously, it would have to be some sort of an extreme amount of uh, explosion to cause that. Uh, Then as we learned as Embraer Legacy Aircraft, I mean, I don't say anything against Russian aircraft, but if it was a Russian aircraft, maybe it would make more sense for a wing to fall off. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. And as of yesterday, they confirmed, or Russia State confirmed, that it was Provokovich's remains on the aircraft. I still find that highly suspect. I'm sure everybody does. I don't know what the real story is. People have been asking me, like, what do you think really happened? And I don't know if we'll really find out that. But it is uh, it is interesting. Um, it's an interesting developing events uh, to be flying around in Russia with all of your, it sounded like, senior leadership for the mercenary group. So I don't know. Uh, like I said, it, it's it's a curious incident. It would be Interesting to know exactly how it went down. If our reports of a bomb being on the plane, knowing that it's in Russia, I'm sure nobody's expecting to get ever the full tale out of out of what happened there. Ten people were on board. They all passed away. The aircraft was registered to one of the companies that was owned by Provokovich. You know, and obviously it was an uncontrolled descent into the ground. So something catastrophic happened there. And one of the interesting things with the deal that was made when Provokovich was heading towards Moscow in an attempted coup was he was uh, annexed to Belarus, but then he popped back up in Africa. But any of the mercenaries that were a part of that deal initially were required to register for the Russian military. Who knows what will happen now if it will just dissolve. It seems like anybody that decides to step out of line with Vladimir Putin ends up in some in a situation where your wing falls off as a metaphor or in this case a reality. 
As you heard from the opening, what we're here to talk about today is an aircraft incident that happened in 1994. And this would be Federal Express Flight 705, which was a DC-10 cargo jet that departed Memphis, Tennessee and bound to San Jose, California. So as we talked about in my bio and all the ROM, I worked in Laredo, Texas for a while. So we did a story on that. And then as I was thinking, I thought, well, it might be interesting to do a story from different places that I've worked. And this was a story that was talked about uh, when I worked in San Jose, California. Federal Express still had a presence, does to this day in San Jose and at the time was flying in DC-10s and MD-11s. I believe as of two or three months ago, the last MD-11 from Federal Express's fleet has departed. Uh, I remember at the time they were switching out the aircraft while I was working in the area. Uh, They were going from the MD-11, so we started to see those less frequently, and the DC-10s, and we started seeing the uh, 767s, brand new, uh, coming into the airport. At first, everyone was excited to see a brand new aircraft, nice and shiny, and then over time, you started to realize you were not going to see the MD-11s anymore. We even, at the time, there's still some 727s coming and going, especially to our last, or two stories back in Laredo, Texas. Two or three, I'm starting to lose track now, but two or three stories back in Laredo, Texas, where we were talking about the incident with Continental. That's kind of a museum for aviation down there. You still see Metroliner 727s. In most airports and in most places around the country, as everybody knows, it's an aviation enthusiast. You're starting to see less and less where they've disappeared altogether. So, like I said, at first it there was this thought of, oh, awesome, a brand new aircraft. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm never going to see the old one again. This story, though, uh, is very fascinating. And if you haven't heard about it, it's an incident that created more security protocols uh, at airports, insider threat. It really brought to light that notion and that ideology of potential catastrophic issues with people that you know and you work with, uh, hence the insider threat. Uh, But let's get a little bit into the story here and what happened with more details than we had in the opening. So at the beginning of this podcast, we mentioned Auburn Calloway. Auburn Calloway earned a degree from Stanford University, and he joined the U.S. Navy as a pilot. He was also skilled in martial arts. After leaving the military, Mr. Calloway worked as a flight engineer for Federal Express. He struggled with emotional instability and money worries. His once promising career had produced several setbacks. He could only find work as a flight engineer, and he had gone through a divorce. So I remember the 1990s. Right now, I, I talk to a lot of students in my job. And I was just speaking with one the other day who he said, uh, and it's just striking because I've been in the industry a while comparative to where we've been, or as we've just referenced in this incident, where flying was truly a passion and it was really hard to get a job. Uh, but the student I just spoke to, you know, we met actually at a golf course, uh, we were doing an event there and he came up and, and asked about what we were doing and, you know, exchanged information and he gave me a call. You know, at first he was kind of enthusiastic about finding a role in a position, which was great. But one of the things, and he, and I should reference this, I mean, he, he's a good, seems like a good kid and, and do his job. And it's just where the market is now. But, you know, I offered to take him around and introduce him to different flight departments, people that fly either charter on demand 135 or, you know, part 91 operators. And he's like, well, you know, I'm on the golf team and I really want a job for my personal, professional life work balance. And who's going to give me the best of that? Which, like I said, I, I get it. That's where we are now. But it's interesting comparatively where one of the worst scenarios I knew as I was 
was coming in this industry, one of my friends, he actually was paying an airline to fly for them uh, so he could build time. We've completely 180 in the industry, which is great. I have a lot of pilot friends and, and I think that's awesome for them. But the ones that are just coming into the industry now, they have no idea how bad it really was, which is what Mr. Calloway obviously was going through here. He wanted to be a pilot, but all he could find was being a flight engineer with FedEx. You know, let's hope that the good times keep rolling here and that we don't end up in another situation where pilots really found themselves from the 1980s to Oh, probably 2015, maybe. <laughs> I think in the last probably five years or so, it's it's actually started to get better. Incrementally, I guess in the in the 2010s, it was getting better. Uh, definitely in a better position for young folks that are trying to get in the industry. But Mr. Callaway found himself uh, distressed about his job and his divorce and where his career was going. The sun cast its morning glow over Memphis, Tennessee on April 7th, 1994. On that fateful day, the FedEx crew of Flight 705 was preparing for a routine flight to San Jose, California. Captain David Sanders, a seasoned aviator with thousands of flight hours under his belt, commanded the aircraft. Accompanying him was First Officer James Tucker and Flight Engineer Andy Peterson. They were about to embark on a journey that would challenge their training, courage, and resilience like never before. The aircraft was a McDonnell Douglas DC-10, a wide-body trijet that had become a staple of FedEx's cargo fleet. With its distinctive three-engine configuration, the DC-10 was renowned for its versatility and capacity to carry in large volumes of cargo across long distances. Unbeknownst to the flight crew, their world was about to collide with the unthinkable. Auburn Calloway, a fellow employee of FedEx, had devised a chilling plan to bring down the aircraft. The morning sun masked its sinister intentions as he armed himself with an arsenal of hammers and a spear gun, elements that would transform the flight into a heart-pounding thriller. And so the stage was set. The crew, unaware of the impending danger continued their pre-flight checks with a sense of calm that comes from familiarity. The Memphis skyline shrank behind the DC-10 as it ascended into the boundless skies en route to San Jose. The aircraft, a symbol of modern engineering, held the destinies of many, including the disgruntled employee with a nefarious plan. Mr. Calloway tried to disable the cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, part of his sinister plan to hide any tracks that this was an intentional incident versus an accident. As the aircraft soared to 19,000 feet, the tranquility of the cockpit was shattered. Callaway launched a vicious attack on Peterson, Tucker, and Sanders with hammers as the chaos and struggle filled the air as crew fought back against the unthinkable. Captain David Sanders, he was a seasoned aviator with 20 years at FedEx, plus a military background. First Officer James Tucker was also a Navy pilot with 10 years at FedEx, and Andy Peterson had served for five years. So Mr. Callaway met a formidable crew when he breached the flight deck. With the crew's lives hanging in the balance, the struggle became a battle between darkness and courage. Despite his injuries, Captain Sanders managed to regain control while First Officer Tucker orchestrated a daring maneuver to disrupt Callaway's assault. Callaway wasn't done yet. Armed with his spear gun, he continued to struggle, attempting to wrestle controls away from the crew. The cockpit became a battleground and arena where survival instincts clashed with the sinister thoughts that had taken over one man's mind. It was a fight against time and fate. The crew's resiliency ultimately triumphed as they overpowered Callaway and brought the aircraft back under their command. With their strength tested, and their bodies battered, the crew orchestrated an emergency landing, defying odds and guiding the aircraft safely back to Memphis. So let's talk a little bit further in the actual details of this incident. We talked about the CVR. Before takeoff, Calloway attempted to disable the cockpit voice recorder by pulling circuit breakers to interrupt its power. During the standard pre-flight checks, though, Peterson, the flight engineer, noticed the pull breaker and reset it before takeoff. 
However, though, even though Peterson was able to turn it back on, if Mr. Callaway had been successful in taking over the aircraft, he would have known that he only needed to fly an extra 30 minutes to record over any of the incident that had taken place because there was a 30-minute loop on the CVR. 26 minutes after takeoff, and as we spoke about the plane passing through 19,000 feet, flight crew carried on a casual conversation, and Callaway went into the back to get his weapons and enter the flight deck. All three crew members received multiple hammer blows. Both Peterson and Tucker, the first officer, suffered fractured skull, and Peterson's temporal artery was severed. Blow to Tucker's head drilled shards of bone into his brain and initially rendered him unable to move or react, but he was still conscious. Captain Sanders reported that during the beginning of the attack, he could not discern any emotion from Callaway, just simply a face in his eyes. When Callaway ceased his hammer attack, Peterson and Sanders began to get out of their seats to go after Callaway. Callaway left the cockpit and retrieved his spear gun. He came back into the cockpit and threatened everyone to sit back down in their seats. Despite a loud ringing in his ears and being unbalanced and dazed, Peterson grabbed the gun by the spear. Tucker then put the DC-10 into a sharp 15-degree climb, and a lengthy struggle ensued. While Tucker, also an ex-Navy pilot, performed an extreme aerial maneuver with the aircraft, he pulled the plane into a sudden 15-degree climb, throwing Sanders, Peterson, and Callaway out of the cockpit and into the galley. This was to try to throw Callaway off balance. Tucker then turned the plane into a left roll almost on its side. Eventually, Tucker had rolled the plane almost upside down at 140 degrees while attempting to maintain a visual reference of the environment around him through the windows. Peterson, Sanders, and Callaway were then pinned to the ceiling of the plane. Callaway managed to wrench this hammer free and hit Sanders in the head again. Just then, Tucker put the plane into a steep dive and pushed all three of the individuals back into the smoke curtain, but the wings and the elevator started to flutter. At this point, Tucker could hear wind against the cockpit windows at a speed of 460 knots. The plane's elevators fluttered so much that the control surfaces became unresponsive due to disruptive airflow. This lack of control tested the aircraft's safety limits. Tucker also began to sense a mock-tuck effect as the airflow over the wings approached the speed of sound. Tucker realized the throttles were at full power, increasing the speed of the aircraft. Releasing his only usable hand to pull back the throttles to an idle, he managed to pull the plane out of the dive. The DC-10 leveled off at 5,000 feet. Callaway managed to hit Sanders again while the struggle continued, and this time the blow nearly knocked him unconscious. Sanders was losing strength, and Peterson was bleeding out from his ruptured temporal artery. It was starting to go into shock. In spite of his diminishing strength, Sanders managed to grab the hammer out of Callaway's hand and attacked him with it. When the plane was completely level, Tucker alerted Memphis Center, telling them about the attack and requesting Vector back to Memphis. He requested an ambulance and arm intervention, meaning he wanted SWAT teams to storm the plane. The flight crew eventually succeeded in restraining and disarming Callaway, although only after moments of inverted and overspeed flight beyond the design capabilities of the DC-10. Tucker was severely diminished with his sense of touch and was paralyzed on the right side of his body. Sanders took the control. Tucker went back to assist Peterson in restraining Callaway. Sanders communicated with air traffic control, preparing for an emergency landing back at Memphis International Airport. Meanwhile, Callaway started fighting with the crew again. Fully loaded with fuel and cargo, the plane was approaching too fast and too high to land on the scheduled runway 9. Due to the plane's weight, speed, and height, it was at a risk of breaking up upon landing on these conditions. Sanders requested by radio to land in the longer runway 36 left. Ignoring warnings from the ground proximity warning system, 
and using a series of sharp turns that further tested the DC-10 safety limits, Sander landed the jet safely on runway 36 left at 35,000 pounds over the maximum designated landing weight. By that time, Callaway was defeated. Emergency personnel and police gained access to the plane via the escape slide and the ladder inside and found the interior of the gallery and cockpit covered in blood. Callaway was arrested and taken off the plane, and Peterson, Tucker, and Sanders were taken to a nearby hospital. The crew of Flight 705 survived the attack, but all were seriously injured. The left side of Tucker's skull was severely fractured. This caused motor control problems in his right arm and right leg. Callaway had also dislocated Tucker's jaw, attempted to gouge out one of his eyes, and stabbed his right arm. Sanders suffered several deep gashes in his head, and doctors had to sew his right ear back in place. Flight engineer Peterson's skull was fractured and his temporal artery severed. The aircraft itself suffered $800,000 worth of damage. On August 11, 1995, Auburn Calloway was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the eligibility for parole. And to this day, Calloway still is serving his sentence in Kentucky. On May 26, 1994, the Airline Pilots Association awarded Dave Sanders, Jim Tucker, and Andy Peterson the gold medal award for heroism. The highest award a civilian pilot can receive, as of 2004, 10 years after the incident, and due to the extent and the severity of the injuries, none of the crew had been recertified as medically fit to fly commercially. However, Jim Tucker did return to recreational flying. The McDonnell Douglas DC-10 that was involved in the aircraft, November 306 Foxtrot Echo, was repaired after the incident and returned to service. In 2008, it was upgraded to an MD-10 which, among other improvements, eliminated the ongoing need for a flight engineer. On June 7th of 2022, the aircraft was involved in another incident where the crew safely diverted to Tulsa International Airport after receiving a cargo fire warning indication. On December 31st, 2022, it was among the last of FedEx's MD-10 fleet to be retired. Having made its maiden flight November 5th, 1985, and having been delivered to FedEx on January 24th, 1986. Shortly after learning of November 306 Fotrock Echo's retirement, aviation enthusiast Jack Schneider started an online petition to encourage FedEx to assist in preserving the aircraft, citing its significant aviation history resulting from its involvement and survival of attempted hijacking. To this date, March 21st, 2023, the petition attained 10,541 signatures, though it's unclear at this point if FedEx is still aware of it. I will add that link to the information page on our website for this. So I'm not going to go into all the transcript. Maybe I'll drop the link into the info section, but I did want to read a little bit of it, leading right up to when uh, Mr. Calloway enters the flight deck altimeters nine and twos here after takeoff is complete do you uh live over in arkansas dave or no i live in fisherville oh fisherville great spot sounds of hammer blows striking pilots ow god oh ah shit god almighty ow what the fuck are you doing god god almighty god god get him get him get him he's going to kill us get him get up and get him i can't god stop hold his goddamn sit down Sit down. Get get back in your seat. This is a real gun. I'll kill you. Get him. Get him. Get him. Get him. Get him. Get him. Bank angle. Bank angle. Get him. Get him. Get him. Get him. I'm going to kill you. Hey, hey. I'll kill you. Bank angle. Bank angle. Get him. Get him. Get him. Bank angle. Bank angle. Yeah, get him. Bank angle. Bank angle. Get him. Get him. Get him, Andy. I got the airplane. Bank. Bank angle. Get him, Andy. Get him. Bank angle, bank angle, struggling in the background. 
Center, center, emergency, center, emergency, bank angle, bank angle, center, center, listen to me, Express 705, I've been wounded, we've had an attempted takeover on board, give me a vector please, back to Memphis at this time, hurry, bank angle, bank angle, 095, 095, direct Memphis, get an ambulance and uh, alert uh, airport facility, bank angle, bank angle, center, hey Memphis, you still with me? Obviously a ton of commotion going on there. And I just want to add, I read the script as it's written. So any of you that do not want to hear profanity, I do apologize for that. But it is uh, as as written, not, uh, I did not add or take away anything from the actual recording there. So obviously this incident stirred a lot with security, right? So in 2001, after those events, TSA was created. Even to this day, the insider threat is something that everybody's acutely aware of because of incidents like this. He had the credentials. He had the ability to get on the aircraft. He was someone that everybody trusted. Really, nobody was expecting him to do anything odd or or different. If you're not in aviation, you don't understand a jump seater. It's really similar to what Tom Hanks' role was in Castaway on FedEx. He was just riding in the back, but he was a FedEx employee, if you remember from the movie. So if you look at it in that same sense, who would have expected Tom Hanks to do anything on that aircraft? Nobody would expect Mr. Calloway to do anything on this aircraft. So it's always one of those hard things in aviation, right? You vet and if you look at this, someone with military experience, you don't know what's going on in their personal life. But that's why we have checks and balances, right? Fortunately, these incidences have diminished over the years in the United States, uh, almost to the point now where they're really left to the history books. Uh, we don't see these type of takeovers happening now, which I think speaks to the resiliency of the industry and the ability to adapt and change security protocols. I did want to read a little bit about the article to save this aircraft because I find it very interesting. So I'm not going to read all the article, but this is an article from Simple Flying. As we talked about, November 306 Foxtrot Echo was one of the last MD freighters operating for FedEx. Based on the data from Flight Trader 24, the final flight for FedEx was December 31st of 2022, and it operated between Canada's Toronto Pearson International and Memphis International Airport. The interesting thing here is uh, I do not see from 2022 till now where this aircraft is. Can't find any detailed information on FlightAware or any of the tracking website. It appears that the aircraft is in storage, but I cannot confirm that. So if anybody listening can confirm it, feel free to drop it into the notes. But from its last flight with FedEx, I don't see anything even on the plane spotters websites it's just showing that it's uh older photos so it would be interesting because we're now sitting about a year away from when this petition was first circulated so i wonder if it since it hasn't really gotten too much traction if fedex has uh, kept the aircraft in memphis i would assume they've at least put it in the desert but like i said i do not actually see anything on the tracker regarding that so FedEx to this day is still running a couple aircraft to and from san jose uh they have a ramp space there on the east side of the airport when i worked in san jose and even to this day you know it's a categorized as a medium hub airport they have class charlie airspace under the class bravo for san francisco so it is a busy airspace the reason why you don't see more fedex or ups operations there is they do have a 161 noise curfew the faa does not allow 161s anymore but san jose was one of those early adopters of a noise curfew after 2300 hours or 11 p.m 
it doesn't allow for most aircraft to operate. There's a bunch of stuff tied to it. It's really geared around Federal Aviation Regulation FAR 36 uh, and the decibel levels in there. Their decibel level that they're with is 89 decibels. So uh, any cargo aircraft does not meet that. So it really has shut down uh, San Jose kind of limited it to these type of operations. So that's why you don't see too much cargo at San Jose. But Oakland Airport really became the cargo airport for the Bay Area. Of course, San Francisco has has cargo as well. San Jose is somewhat restricted there. So it was an interesting tale. Like I said, it you know, you get into aviation security and this incident, among others, is brought up, obviously, like we talked about, insider threat, very hard to combat against. But kudos to all the teams that, like I said, from this kind of point, this incident, and as we really got into the 2000s, after 2001, aviation security and aviation safety in the United States really has never been at a better point right now as far as a safety record. So kudos to all those teams out there that make it happen from the airport to the TSA, to the FAA, to the pilots, to the crew members. Uh, It all takes us working together for sure to maintain the integrity and safety of the system. I am actually going to be traveling this next week on vacation, so I probably won't be able to get an episode out. Maybe I'll take some photos of where I want to go. I've been looking around uh, Marquette Sawyer Airport up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I just have some fascination with it, I guess. It's the only air traffic control tower facility in the Upper Peninsula. They used to be at Air Force Base during the 1990s and the base realignment that the Clinton administration put out, it closed. Uh, They do have almost a 10,000-foot runway, um, obviously way more than really anything that's going in there today. But if I get some photos, I will, uh, I'll throw them up, but I won't be talking to you next weekend. So we'll have to wait till the weekend after that. So I hope everybody has a great Labor Day. If you do get an opportunity, I alluded to it a little bit into this podcast, but we have launched our official website. So I will put that into the notes. I'm hoping to have a detailed page for the episodes on there and uh, looking forward to continuing our travels together and hopefully make it a little bit easier to find us. So once again, I hope everybody has a safe, fun-filled Labor Day weekend, and we will see you down the runway.